And actually, my views change over, uh, over time about the responsibility for the charge of the light brigade. And that is allowed, uh, Ollie, because historians uh, should be open minded as to new information Indeed. coming their way. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. And I'm continuing my chat with Saul David, who you heard at the top there. Saul, last week, was discussing his his new book, SBS. And so this week, I thought uh, I would take advantage of my chat with him. And I would start asking him questions about books he's re- written previously in the 2000s, where he really made his name writing about the 19th century. So we talk a little bit about that. Um, and I use the quote at the beginning of the show there because I think it's something that I is certainly I think is a very uh, admirable trait in historians, and I like to see it in in uh, all sorts of fields really. But um, the whole open mindedness, and I think where Saul uses the example of the Charge of the Light Brigade to show how he's changed his mind, I thought was very interesting. And laudable. So elsewhere uh, at the Aspects of History headquarters, we've been putting the finishing touches to our new magazine, which is out next month. It features an exclusive interview with Bernard Cornwall. Now, I'm, I'm assuming you know who Bernard Cornwall is, but if you don't, he is the author of the Sharp series of novels, 22 now, with a recent publication of Sharp's Assassin. He started writing Sharp back in 1981, and now here we are, 40 years later, and he's written 22. And obviously Sharp is being huge because of the TV series starring the great Sean Bean. I'm a massive fan of Sean Bean. And he's also written many other um, series of novels, but probably the next most popular one is the Last Kingdom series featuring Uhtred, and that was also made into a very successful TV series on Netflix, which is excellent. So that's what's happening. I got to interview Bernard, and he was a very, very nice man and hugely knowledgeable all on the Napoleonic Wars. So basically, I, I ended up chatting with him about that quite a bit. Um, but we talked to all sorts of things. So I just thought I would let you know about that. A very nice person got in touch with me called Sarah Westcott and she explained to me that she runs a YouTube channel which I'm recommending to you now. It's excellent and it's really for children. So for those of you who've got kids out there, there is a YouTube channel that explains, I I would say it's more for, I'd say it's around GCSE level and I mean I I say that I, I would say it's around GCSE level, it is GCSE level. And it is called The History Teacher. It's on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes, but I do recommend it. It explains rather complex historical events in a very simple way. And the one that I watched that I was quite impressed by was Weimar and Nazi Germany from 1918 to 1939. Now, I don't know about you, but when I did my GCSE history, it was rather a dreary affair discussing... Stalin's five-year plans and and the economic uh, trouble that Germany went through after World War One. It wasn't 
particularly interesting the way I was taught. And so what Sarah has done, and it's called, once again, The History Teacher on YouTube, is is communicate this in a, in a very simple way. And so I do recommend that. Right, that's enough from me. I will now hand you over to me and Saul, where we discuss the Charge of the Light Brigade, the Battle of Isandlwana and the Zulu War, and the beginning of World War One, And then we also talk a little bit about peak geekiness and we talk about a new venture that he's planning. So I do hope you enjoy it. Yeah, as ever, if you want to get hold of me, I'm on the Twitter at OllieWCQ. You can get the Aspects of History Twitter at Aspects History and Saul's available at at SaulDavid66. I hope you enjoy it. Now, that's not the only thing you've been doing, is it? Uh, you have also set something up called the Military History Club. And I think you mentioned you've had your first event already last night. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. Yes, well, I mean, for many years, I was teaching a, a, a an MA in military history at the University of Buckingham. And uh, one of the things we did during that program is to hold evenings in which I'd invite well-known military historians to talk to the group and and the success of that and the the kind of sense of real aficionados of military history love the opportunity to talk about it with other people who are interested about it hence the sort of club aspect but they also like to hear the you know the the, the best in the business in quite an intimate atmosphere so I took some of that the aspects of what I've been doing with the masters in military history but also added to it with elements that you know we're doing today so a podcast every month i talk to a different military historian i've spoken to um uh, richard overy for my first podcast my second po podcast patrick bishop and you know i'll be going through a well-known list of 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 excellent historians who've got new books out and discussing their books with them just like you are discussing my book with me now um but also a very interesting uh, feature suggested by my sister who used to be an agent she's just had a baby recently so she's taking a bit of time out she said why don't you do a battle in 10 minutes and I thought what do you mean she said well just you talking about a battle in 10 minutes just summarize a battle in 10 minutes you know and and tell it like a story so we've incorporated that I've done Isamwana and uh Charge of Light Brigade is about to be released oh uh, brilliant because I want to ask you a couple of things about that so I'm carry on sorry well to every month if you're a member of the so if you're if you're at the top tier of membership you can come to the dinners and meet the meet the uh, military historians but of course there isn't room for everyone to do that so I have to limit the number of right. gold right. members as I call them um, but if you're and then silver members can come to fewer of those dinners. But if you're a bronze member, you get access to all the digital stuff. So you you can have uh, you, you you can watch recordings of the of the lectures. So last night, as you as you say, was my first uh, meeting of the group. Uh, and we had a wonderful lecture by Adrian Goldsworthy on the Roman army at war. So when I was teaching, I, I, I was really doing modern military history. Now, of course, the club can go all the way back to ancient warfare. And it, it was genuinely fascinating for me, actually, to hear about how the Roman army works and, you know, what the evidence is, is there for us as historians today to know what it did. Uh, and it was really it was really eye opening. And then we had a lovely dinner afterwards in the Caledonian Club. So 
all good and i was able to record the lecture um video the lecture which i'll be putting out for the other uh members who either weren't able to make it there or bronze members who of course are, are not eligible to go to the lectures anyway but they still get to hear some of the best people in the business talking about their their books and their work now adrian goldsworthy who <coughs> excuse me um i think i remember watching i'm not sure if you were in the same ever in the same episode before but you know where i'm going with this which is Time Commanders, which for our listeners, I'm going to put a link uh, to the YouTube um, uh, episodes that are still there. But it was this brilliant show where they re redid a, a, a battle from, from history using software, a, a game software. I think it was based on sort of Total War, the, the, the game. Um, but um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, did you uh, did you do that with Adrian in, in an episode? And it, uh, and what was your experience of Time Commanders? Did you enjoy that? Well, I first met Adrian on the set of Time Commanders, um, and we're going back to 2000, 2003 now. So this is almost eighteen years ago. And uh, Adrian, interesting enough, was well, maybe not surprisingly, given that he is probably the expert on Roman warfare, but also knows about Greek warfare too. So ancient warfare is is Adrian's thing. <laughs> Is Adrian's thing. He was the program consultant. And while he had a kind of roving commission to make sure all the detail was right, he also had a specific uh, commission on the day of filming to make sure that the experts, that is myself and other people, um, uh, a guy called Eric Nussbacher was, was the kind of chief expert. We were properly briefed on each of the battles. So Adrian used to go through the battle, the weapons, the tactics. It was absolutely brilliant. We spent about 45 minutes with him on the morning of every shoot. Then we filmed one episode that took place in the morning in real time, you know, so they never cut at all. It was just shot in one go, probably for about two and a half hours. And then they edited it down to an hour. And then in the afternoon, you would have a, sep uh, a separate program. So incredibly efficiently run um, uh, piece of programming. And the best bit of all about it was that you had contestants coming on. So it was not quite a game show, but you had you had members of the public who are the family members or, you know, IT teams and things like that, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, who would come on, come on and then fight the battles. And we, the experts, would comment as we were going through the program. And then at the end, we'd come down to a sandpit in the um in the studio and show them how the real battle was fought and what what the outcome was and it was great fun and for the first series um i was one of the roving uh, experts that was uh, working on the programs and then i think for series two or possibly towards the end of series one uh, adrian not only was overall consultant he also appeared um you know he was on screen as well uh, with the same role and I think Eddie Mayer, I think, was a presenter for one of the series, and I, I quite enjoyed his rather ironic approach to it. it was uh, he was he was well, Eddie Mayer was a brilliant choice. He he was, um, in my view, uh, absolutely ideal for it. Kind of brilliant broadcaster, but but very ironic, very sort of tongue in cheek, uh, yeah. and he set just the right turn. I thought it was brilliant. And later on, of course, they probably wanted a bigger name. They used. Uh, uh, Richard Hammond out of top guy they yeah. use Richard Hammond out of top guy to, uh, uh, top gear top top guy yeah top, top guy <laughs> what's top Richard guy out, <laughs> they use Richard Hammond out of out of top gear and he wasn't anywhere near as good as, in my view having said that I wasn't I wasn't um involved in the second series so oh uh, that's so we won't comment. yeah that sounds sounds like a we won't go there I mean one of one of the great missed opportunities not using me for that second yeah, series yeah I think so, I think so. I'll definitely only link to the first series 
Um, so now I thought whilst I have you here, Saul, because you've written, I think I've been counting up in the first is, is uh, make sure I get this right. But I think it's about 13 nonfiction books and three fiction. Is that right? Yeah, something around that. It's it definitely, I mean, I'm definitely into double figures on nonfiction and I know I've written three novels because I was contracted to write them and, you know, and I fulfilled that contract. So, so yes, but I suppose it's quite a lot of books if you consider that the first one came out in 1995. So sort of rough a book a year isn't it uh, sorry a book every two years which is not bad going and in recent times ollie you will know if you've been following my career that i'm more I, you know i i've actually produced a book every year for the last few years and i you know i hate to say this but lockdown was a time when i literally got my head down uh, wrote another book which is coming out later this year and then and then started work on on a follow-up which um you know i'm working on at the moment uh, so the follow-up is a follow-up to the one that's coming out later this year is it well, the follow-up is, in a way, the, so the book I'm researching at the moment uh, is uh, the story of the airborne forces in the Second World War. And in some ways, it's a companion piece to the SBS because I'm doing for airborne what I did for uh, maritime special forces. The airborne story is, of course, much bigger and in some ways better known. But of course, for every Arnhem and Pegasus Bridge, there yeah. are an awful lot of operations you will never have heard of, like Operation Colossus which was the first airborne attempt to, well, the first airborne operation, in fact, in 1941 to knock out a, a, um, an aqueduct in southern Italy, um, didn't go terribly well. They did manage to blow up the aqueduct, but they, they, they were all captured. So they were slowly but surely learning from these early errors. And I, I, I mentioned briefly in one of my earlier answers, one of the other operations, that's Operation Freshman in Norway, in which everyone who was captured was executed. So there were you know, some tragic stories along the way. And a lot of unheralded moments, too, I think, like, for example, the the great crossing of the Rhine, um, which is often forgotten as a great uh, um, airborne operation. The 6th Airborne Division, which was the same division that, that uh, was involved in D-Day, but not at Arnhem, uh, was the one that carried out the crossing of the Rhine. It was very successful. A lot of casualties. But what they were trying to do, which was to secure the far side of the Rhine, while the crossing was going on, or at least coincide with the crossing, um, was a great success. And it was it was an American um, British operation, March 1945. And really, you know, it was it was the death knell for the Germans after that. Fantastic. So when that, when do you think you're going to have that ready or when will that be published? Well, that will be finished at the end of this year and then probably published either late 2023 or possibly 2024 i've got it i've got a sneaking suspicion that publishers might want to coincide with the 80th anniversary of arn right. so uh we might have to wait a little bit for that one but in the meantime coming out later this year a book i did finish writing during lockdown uh called devil dogs which is the story of a single unit of marines uh all the way through the pacific and i got the idea of writing it of course when i was working on my okinawa book crucible of hell um Okinawa is the location that the Marines end up in, but they're also there at the beginning. So I had to pick a unit that was there from the start and the finish. And there are only two or three. And I, the reason I picked one in particular, which is K Company of three, five Marines, is because it had an unusually high number of talented writers, including, of course, the most famous writer of the Pacific of all, and that is Eugene Sledge. Um, but Eugene Sledge's actual published work, very you know, highly regarded in America and also in Britain by by those who who are aware of him, with the old breed as it's known, is a kind of unflinching, really, really kind of grim portrait of the experience of an ordinary um, 
soldier, ordinary, sorry, ordinary Marine, you can't call Marines soldiers, ordinary Marine fighting his way through the Pacific War. Um, Sledge is only involved in two campaigns. And of course, I was actually dealing with the start of the story, which is Guadalcanal, and then going through the four campaigns that the first Marine Division, which was the, you know, the parent organization of, of uh, K Company 3-5 Marines, um, the places it had fought. And I wanted to tell the story from the beginning of the Pacific War to the end of the Pacific War through the prism of this small group of men and very much a band of brothers for, for the Pacific. Never been done before, amazingly. Um, some Americans may wonder why it took a British military historian to yeah. write about some of their more iconic battles, but uh, that, that's the way it is. Um, there was a gap in the market. And the only thing I'll add to that, of course, is that the sadness of writing this book now is that they've already made a big um, mini series about the Pacific. Uh, in it's which- It's really good, isn't it? Have you it's seen it? Great, but yeah. It's great, but they, I mean, the production values are off the charts. You know, this is this is Spielberg and, and Hanks, uh, the same outfit, of course, who made Band of Brothers. But the reason I don't think it works as well as it might have done, I say sound very modest here, if they'd had a book like mine to guide mm. them is because they weren't able to follow a single unit because there was no story that they could follow. So they had to knit together diverse uh, uh, groups who actually in some senses didn't have any connection with each other. They still told the whole story of the Pacific, but it, it doesn't have the same intimacy and the same uh, sort of comradeship that you get in Band of Brothers. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I oh, can't wait till that come out, comes out. Um, now, you. so this is Second World War stuff we've been talking about. But I first read your, your stuff when, when you were writing about the, the 19th century and all those big... Um, sort of clashes that that have that have been I- iconic um, for for the for for the British Empire. You know the sort of Charge of the Light Brigade, the um, Rourke's Drift. Um, so I wanted to ask you a, a few quick fire questions about these kind of things, uh, and so you can you can. Um, uh, I-, I wanted to get your view. I mean, they're, they're, these aren't curveballs. You'll have you'll have known about these for a while, but um, okay, Charge of the Light Brigade. Is that Nolan's fault or Lucan's or Cardigan's or all three? Or Raglan's? Uh, well, yeah, good question. And actually, my views change over, uh, over time about the responsibility for the charge of the Light Brigade. And that is allowed, uh, Ollie, because historians uh, should be open minded as to new information Indeed. coming their way. And so there's a difference between the view I had when I wrote the Earl of Cardigan biography, which was that I very much shared the blame between the three people you've just mentioned, to my view now, which is that Nolan must take the chief share of the responsibility. And some interesting new bits of evidence came up to change my mind. And one of them was a series of letters written by uh, a, a senior start, well, not an aide de camp to Raglan, who was present at the moment in which Nolan is sent off. So, you know, in I'm sure. We should probably explain for the listeners, actually, I've mentioned some rattle some names off and people might not know who they are. Well, the key the key key bit of the story of the Charge of the Light Brigade is, is the sending of the so-called Order Number Four down to uh, Lucan, who is commanding the cavalry division in the valley. Raglan's looking at the battle from the top on the Sapune Heights, as they're known, uh, and he realizes that the uh, or he can see that the Russians are beginning to take away some of the British naval guns, which they've captured in the redoubts on the Causeway Heights. So he sends an order down to um, uh, the cavalry commander, Lucan, to try and stop them doing it. The problem is the order is very badly wor- worded. Instead of specifically mentioned 
instead of specifically mentioning the heights, it simply refers to stop the enemy carrying away the guns. It doesn't say from where. Now, there's a confusion. By the time Nolan gets to Nolan is the galloper who's carrying the order. He's a staff officer, but he's also a very uh, sort of capable uh, military theorist. He's written a number of books on cavalry tactics, and he's been convinced that the cavalry have been pretty useless in the campaign up to now. And he's determined that they're going to uh, do something. Uh, and so when he gets to the valley floor and he gives the order to Lucan, Lucan quite under, understandably asks him, well, what guns are you talking about? Uh, so instead of explaining exactly what Raglan meant, he just throws his hand out in the vague direction of the redoubts and says, there is your enemy, there are your guns. Now, when Lucan looks at what he appears to be pointing to, he looks down to the far end of the valley, the so-called North Valley, as it's known, where he can see a line of uh, Russian guns. These are actually Russian horse artillery guns, which have been set up in a defensive position. So what actually happens is that <laughs> Lucan uh, is convinced by Nolan to send the cavalry, uh, to send the light cavalry, that's the, the light brigade as it was known, in a frontal assault on that battery of guns. That's not what Ragland had intended at all. So to answer your question in this very kind of long-winded way, the reason Nolan's responsible is because of two things. He doesn't explain the order properly so that, um, uh, so that, Lucan can understand. And secondly, and this is the real key thing that comes out of the uh, the new evidence, he specifically says to, uh, to Lucan, your orders are to attack immediately. And that is complete nonsense. There was nothing about attacking. What actually Raglan had intended the cavalry to do is to almost a show of demonstration to advance up either side of the Causeway Heights and just encourage the Russians to withdraw and leave the guns. There was nothing about attacking. Uh, and, and so by using the word attack, Nolan effectively forces Lucan's hand and Lucan then sends the order to Cardigan and Cardigan sends the, sends the light brigade into motion. And we know what happens next because it's an absolute carnage. 400 horses are killed. Uh, you know, a huge number of, of the, uh, the light brigade is really destroyed. It's one of the most glorious but mad actions in, in British military history. And it, and it really came about, I think, you know, now chiefly because of Nolan's failings. Great. Now, it, it, I, I love that story. We could talk about that forever. Um, another one I want to talk to you about is the Battle of Isinluana. Now, um, this is the Zulu War. 1879 and the British are setting up camp under the mountain of um, Isenluana. I think I've, I've got that right. Now, were they overrun by the Zulus because they couldn't load their, their guns quick enough? Uh, no, they were overrun ultimately because of uh, Lord Chelmsford, the British commander's arrogance and underestimation of the enemy. I mean, that's the sim simplest way I can put it. He, he, he uh, launched an invasion of Zululand at three points with three three invasion uh, and, and just to interrupt you, this invasion was uh, an outrageous act, wasn't it? Well, it was a war of aggression. It was completely uncalled for. I mean, the Zulus were had no intention of making war on the British. Uh, in fact, they had a loose alliance with the British. Uh, but um, uh, Sir Bartle Frere, who was the... Uh, was the governor in, in the Cape province and who had been sent out to South Africa with a specific intention to 
unify the various different groupings, including the Boer republics, into a single confederation. And the assumption was eventually this will be self-governing and it's going to save us a lot of money in terms of defending this important strategic colony. Um, so Sir Bartle Frere had taken it upon himself to neutralize what he perceived to be a very dangerous thorn in the flesh of the British, and that was this Sulu kingdom. But he was absolutely a war of aggression, unprovoked. Um, and the reason the Islam Islamic comes about is because Chelmsford underestimates, as I say, the, the Zulu threat. He thinks he's going to have to winkle out the Zulus to fight, and it's going to take a long time. And so he orders these three invasions that are eventually are going to converge on the Zulu capital of Alundi, and that's when they'll finally bring the um, <laughs> Zulus to battle. He he should have known and had actually been told by people who knew the way the Zulus fight that they're incredibly aggressive, they can move very quickly, uh, and you need to be on your guard uh, against them at all times. And far from you actually having to find them, the danger is they will come and surprise you, and that's exactly what happens. And to compound his initial idiocy and his inability to send out pickets and scouts to find out where the Zulu army was, he then divides his army, which was initially 5,000 strong into two groups, takes the larger part off on a wild goose chase on the morning of the 22nd of January 1879, which was the day the battle took place. And just a few hours later, having left the camp with inadequate protection, the Zulu army of 20,000 attacks it. Now, you mentioned the, the ammunition. I mean, there is some kind of <laughs> feeling, of course, that if they'd had magazine rifles, maybe they'd have been able to hold out. But they had a they had single shot breech loading rifles, um, Martini Henry's, which was a very good bit of kit at that time uh, and far superior to anything the Zulus had. But of course, you can only load one bullet at a time. So that probably came into the equation to a certain extent. But if if Chelmsford had been sensible and kept his forces together, it never would have been overwhelmed. Uh, he learned his lesson, of course, after this and made sure that whenever he did march into Zululand in future, which he did a few months later, he did so with a single uh, column that basically stayed together and lagered every night and created a little mini fortress. And that was enough to eventually defeat the Zulu nation. But this this arrogance of going in in penny packets was what really cost him at Islamwana. Right. Great stuff. OK, so I think I have we're running out of time. So I've got one more question for you. And because and, I, I think you've written two, two books on World War One. Is that right? One. One that which was. Hundred days to victory. So it's about it. 100, 100 key moments during the course of the war. Right now. So one question I have for you is, do you think Britain should have declared war in 1914 or should they have stayed out of it? Well, I remember reviewing um, uh, Neil Ferguson's book, A Pity of War, uh, about 20 years ago, possibly a little bit longer, in which he made that he made that claim. He said it was it, it was the death knell for the empire, the beginning of the end for the empire. And we should have stayed out of that. The, the First World War. I wholeheartedly disagree. And I disagree for this reason. I mean, 200 years of British foreign policy prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. Uh, 200 years of British foreign policy prior to the outbreak of the First World War had been predicated on stopping any single power in Europe from uh, becoming dominant, one, and two, gaining complete control of the Channel ports. Um, that, of course, is ultimately what probably would have happened if the BEF hadn't assisted France in, in, in defending France. The Germans would have got control of the Channel ports. They would have dominated the rest of Europe and they would have been at that stage an existential threat to Britain. So you can have your empire, but that's not going to be a lot of help to you if a single power dominates the continent. So that was always uppermost in 
Britain's minds, balance of power in Europe. And the Germans, because of their industrial and military power by 1914, were a serious threat. And uh, Britain belatedly realized this. I say belatedly in the, in the weeks and uh, weeks just prior to the outbreak of, of war. So there was a broader strategic um, or grand strategic uh, concern that they were right to take account of. Uh, and if we hadn't fought in that war, if we thought we could stand aside, I think it would have ended very badly for us. And it would have ended very badly for Europe too. So you had two world wars fought to stop German aggression and not just the Second World War, uh, but also in the First World War. And I think there's a sort of misunderstanding among, among some people, some fashionable historians with, uh, how can I put it, axes to grind, have tried to muddy the waters a bit as to why the war began and who was responsible. But I'm not in any doubt that it was due to chiefly um, German and Austrian aggression. Uh, there were many opportunities for them to pull back from the brink and they didn't choose to do so. They, choose, they chose to risk war because they felt a war of some type was, uh, was inevitable sooner or later. Great. Yeah, I, I think I, I certainly agree. I, I also, you know, we've, we, we, were, we were close allies with the French as well and to not have done so would have been a pretty dishonorable act anyway, wouldn't it? Um, exactly. I mean, there, there, there are lots of other factors, you know, that we, we, we have been accused <laughs> since the Second World War of leaving the French in the lurch at Dunkirk. That is, every, you know, the French in their own hearts must know uh, that actually the war was lost at that point, lost for them. And they, 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 were, they were lashing out, uh, frankly, and trying to find scapegoats. We were absolutely within our rights to try and save the BEF then. That is a completely different charge to the sort of charge that would have been leveled against the British if we'd left them in the lurch in 1914. And it probably would never have been forgotten. And it would have soured relations up to, up to this day. Now, admittedly, <laughs> diplomatic relations with the French aren't, aren't always as harmonious as they, can, as they could be. But we are, uh, you know, fellow NATO members. So let's not over exaggerate you know the, the so-called breach that there is between the french and the british good glad to hear it uh right so i have one final question then i'll let you go Saul. which is you i think you mentioned your first book it came out in 1998 so that's 23 24 years ago how how has has you, have you seen the study of history change in that time change in that time do you think it's become more important nowadays than than when you were writing you know, in, in your early career? It's even a little bit earlier than that, actually. It was, um, my first book came out in 1994. So you know, I'm not a million miles off 30 years in this business. Um, I think the biggest single, pe pe people loved reading military history then, and they love reading military history now, because military history, in my view, goes to the sort of heart of, of human nature. Uh, people doing the right thing, but also doing the wrong thing. But it also goes to the sort of individuals and what you and I might think we might do in a certain situation. Every man, um, you know, as Simon Johnson puts it, that feels worse of himself for having, having never been a soldier. And what he's really saying there is that although many of us will never be soldiers, we always wonder, I think, how we would act if we had been. Um, so there's this, there's this kind of extraordinarily broad, I think, and, and complex level of interest that you can get from military history. The way the business has changed is uh, military history was selling well in the 1990s. That's, of course, when Stalingrad was written. But what, what the big change 
for the actual writers of military history, people like me, is the speed with which you can get hold of material now. Um, digitization of documents, the internet generally has allowed you to track down things uh, and even gain direct access to them in a way that you know is, is completely revolutionized the business of writing, uh, but particularly writing history. So a book that would have taken me two or three years it probably takes me half that time now, which when you're trying to make a living out of writing, that is a huge benefit really. Um, anyone could be a historian now, but it, it's it's a bit like saying anyone could be a novelist. I mean, you can gather the material easily. It's making sense of it all. And I think 27 years of experience is very useful for a military historian because you've got all that knowledge of all those different bits of history um, helping you to make sense of whatever your, your new chosen project is. And I'm afraid um, experience does count. There, there is a kind of sense that novelists, they write their best stuff early on, but I don't think that's the same for historians. I think you, you know, you, you could argue some of the best stuff is, is later on in the career. Well, certainly the case with Saul David. Um, so Saul, I've, I've taken up enough of your time, but thank you very much for coming on. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed talking about it. I certainly enjoyed listening to it. Um, and I will hopefully get you on again, uh, certainly this year. Thanks, Ollie. Good to chat. So I hope you found that as interesting as I did. I always love hearing about some of the big events and, and some of the controversies behind them. But that I very much enjoy. So anyway, now I don't have much time now because believe it or not, BT, in their wisdom, has decided to close off a whole load of houses from having their Wi-Fi. So I'm right now huddled around a BlackBerry mobile phone that is churning out data as it's hard as its, its little heart can. And I do love my BlackBerry, but I don't want to kill it any more than I, want, I need to because there aren't many left. So with that in mind, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave it there. And you'll probably be relieved by that. But I'll be back next Saturday. Hopefully my Wi-Fi problems will be sorted out by then. I'm in central London and, and they still can't sort it out. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with me, you can through the Twitter, at OllieWCQ. But I hope you have a fantastic week. Thank you and good night.